They say those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. And when it comes to Marvel's first family, Fox forgot history. Throw in a massive dose of director drama and some rock-hard nudity and you've got all the makings of an absolute disaster. Or do you? You know what time it is? It's time to clobber the notion that 2015's Fantastic Four is not that bad. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this edition of It's Not That Bad, the show that looks for A grades in B movies. It's time to get all superhero-like in today's episode, because joining me today as we take a look at 2015's Fantastic Four is producer of the Smitty and Mitty show, Kevin Hillsden. Kev, welcome to the show. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great, man. I'm doing great from the comfort of my home, which I haven't left in four years, it feels like. <laughs> it's been forever. It's been a minute and a half. So to, an, to an anyone who hasn't listened to the Smitty and Mitty show, kind of give us a, a, a little background there. What is the Smitty and Mitty show? Well, our fans, the Smitty and Midiots, uh, enjoy uh, Smitty and Mitty. Uh, oh, God, how many times can I say Smitty and Mitty before I, 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 people just stop listening? I'm, I'm going to start going ding every time you say ding. Smitty and Mitty. It's going to get a ding counter for sure. Yeah. No, it's it's a sports talk show, um, but every once in a while, uh, Smitty or Mitty, they come up to me and they're like, we just got to have this guy on the show. So we've had like... Um, uh, Colin Mockery from uh, Whose Line Is It Anyway? We just had Jim Shockey from the Outdoor Channel uh, on for like hunting and stuff, which I guess that's still sport. Like it's called game, right? Like when you when you catch something. But you know what? These guys are great. They've come such a long way. We just had our one year anniversary and uh, they they love doing it. I love doing it. And uh, it's, it's just a nice side thing. I'm, I'm just going to point out that you just said anything is a sport if you catch something. So by your definition, syphilis is a sport. And so is Pokemon Go, allegedly, as well. But okay. yeah, syphilis, definitely. <laughs> uh, so when we were discussing, you know, bringing you on the show, uh, and I asked you what movie you wanted to pick, you picked this train wreck of a Marvel film, 2015. Well, it was between this and The Room, right? <sighs> you know we funny? chose. Yeah, and there's actually a Room reference we're going to talk about in this. But why did you choose The Fantastic Four? Oh, because there's only so many times you can break down. I didn't hit him. I did not. So I just wanted to watch a Marvel movie again. Oh, hi, Kev. Oh, oh hi. Oh, hi, Kev. Okay. So because you're the one who picked the movie that we watched and we're going to break down, I'm going to hand the ball over to you, or at least the, the microphone ball, because it's time to take this movie and trailerize it. Transported to an alternate universe, four young outsiders gain superhuman powers as they alter their physical form in shocking ways. Reed Richards becomes Mr. Fantastic, able to stretch and twist his body at will, while pal Ben Grimm gains immense strength as The Thing. Johnny Storm becomes the Human Torch, able to control and project fire while his sister Sue Storm becomes the Invisible Woman. Together, the team must harness their newfound abilities to prevent Doctor Doom from destroying the Earth. They are the Fantastic Four, or at least 2015's version, rated PG-13. It is the 2015 version of this film. Um, 
Which is not a good thing for Fantastic Four because this was the same year that Avengers Age of Ultron came out. So when you're you know, when you're a Marvel movie, even though you're kind of discount Marvel because you were over on Fox and you have to come out the same year as an Avengers tentpole film, that can't have gone too, too well for the way this this was received by the public. Yeah, <laughs> I think this movie is lucky that it even got nine percent considering but i think it helped that age of ultron was probably the fourth best of the four avengers movies so there's a there's a lot to be said about that too because you know as as critical as age of ultron was to you know to the mcu by introducing scarlet witch and you know i mean ultron aside scarlet witch is obviously going to become a a massive part of phase four and beyond um but yes you're right like at, at the time people looked at age of ultron and said Oh, we went from Loki to Ultron that doesn't look like comic book Ultron, so I'm not quite sure how to feel about that. But mm. even still, it's it's it is miles better than you know than Fantastic Four. But let's talk mm. about who stars in this. Speaking of Miles Better, Miles Teller has Reed Richards. Uh, you got Kate Mara as Sue Storm, Michael B. Jordan, a pre you know a pre Killmonger. Michael B. Jordan as Human Torch and Jamie Bell as The Thing. You have, you know, and I can't remember the guy's name who played Doctor Doom, but Doctor Doom was so irrelevant in this movie that I'm not even going to mention him. You also had one of the biggest director dramas going on with Josh Trank directing this film. You know, three years after he 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 killed it by directing Chronicle. Just to give you an idea of how bad this movie ended up being, he didn't direct again until 2020 in Capone. So clearly, I mean, there, there was so much drama around, you know, him coming out and saying like, oh, the studio took it away from me. But then the actors coming out saying, oh, he treated us like crap. Like there's so much wrong, you know, mm-hmm. with the, and we don't know. We don't know everything that went on, you know, behind the scenes kind of thing. But the movie came out with a a ton of baggage and it's kind of hard to, to elevate beyond that no matter how good the movie actually may be yeah no the and uh i was watching a trailer for it before i watched the movie and the trailer was so good man i'm watching it and i'm like this is so exciting i forgot how this movie like because i've watched it twice in the last week so i watched the trailer first before the first time i saw it this past week and i was like man i'm hyped for this i forgot how it went like this is great and i remembered now why i forgot how it went um <laughs> but there, there was definitely some positive takeaways like where do you want to start with this is your show where do you want well, to start well let, let, let's keep going with a bit more background because there's some stuff okay. that, that that when you hear about it you're going to be like oh i didn't even know that but first the screenplay by jeremy slater who, yeah. later, who later developed the umbrella academy and who has now recently written an episode from of moon knight so clearly yeah. it wasn't jeremy slater's fault you know that this film did so bad seeing as how they brought him into moon knight um the entire film was made so Fox could retain the rights. So the way the way these things work is that Fox had the rights to Fantastic Four. And of course, you know, we were, I think, like seven years after Rise of the Silver Surfer. Yep. And they needed to put something out. Otherwise, the rights to the Fantastic Four would revert back to Marvel Studios and they would have been able to put, you know, uh, the Fantastic Four into the MCU a lot sooner than they did. Which, hey, we can't let that happen, right? Oh, dear God, no. Um, but this isn't the first time that that happened. 
because in 1994, there was an unreleased uh, Fantastic Four film produced by Roger Corman. And the whole reason why it was made was to retain the movie rights to Fantastic Four. That movie never saw the light of day. It was never released. And I feel bad because it's one of the things where if I ever get a chance to see it, I'm sure there's things in that movie you know, that I'm like, okay, this is not bad. Like it's a Roger Corman film. Yeah. When Roger Corman's name is attached to it, you kind of take a lot of things, you know, for granted, or you, you, you accept a lot more because it is a Roger Corman film, because that's what he's known for. The fact that there's these maneuvers just to hold on to rights, it doesn't do anyone justice, the movie itself or the actual rights holders. It just becomes something pumped out for pumped out sake. Now, yeah. there, there was supposed to be a sequel to this. And according to IMDb, that sequel could have been directed by Tommy Wiseau. He wanted to direct the sequel to Fantastic Four. Never happened. This is where we add in like that, that meme right now. What did he say? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, this turned it so bad that Marvel Comics stopped making Fantastic Four books. They're like, we are pulling it. There was actually, there was an episode uh, or an episode, an edition of the Punisher where they had the likeness of the, the cast members of the film sitting in a room, you know, talking about something. And then the room blows up. Like they, they they offed the cast of this film in a Punisher comic book, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's clear what Marvel thought of the entire thing. And that's not even to say, you know, it was because of the way the movie turned out. It's probably a lot more to do with, you know, the drama surrounding it and what Fox did in order to be able to get, you know, to hold on to the rights, especially because, you know, when you think about Guardians of the Galaxy 2, mm. you know, they had to basically work with Fox to be able to get the rights to Ego, the living planet. Mm-hmm. You know, and if I, if I remember reading something correctly, it was basically a swap because mm-hmm. Negasonic Teenage Warhead the rights of that character were kind of still under Marvel Studios control. And then Ego, because it's so directly related to the Fantastic Four, you know, was under Fox control. So it was very much like one. It, it was it was a hockey trade. Negasonic's you know? an interesting one, though, because like th- there's a few things like that. Like I, I was looking up before I, I'm going down a rabbit hole right now, but the, it's a whole like who owns what kind of thing. And it's it, it's based on where they debuted. So you know how all the Spider characters are owned by Sony now? Mm-hmm. But Spider-Woman is Marvel-controlled because she debuted in Avengers 154. Yeah. And uh, what's the other? What's the one you were saying before? Uh, uh, Ego. The, uh, Ego. Planet. Yeah. Ego and uh, Quicksilver and Wanda were also under Fox control, which they were in a Marvel movie that was released in 2015, Age of Ultron. So that was a straight swap, but they, so Marvel legally has the rights to use them as much as Fox does because they debuted in an Avengers comic. I can't remember which one. Yeah. It's, in that one too. And Ego debuted in an X-Men comic for some reason. And Negasonic debuted in, I want to say like a Hawkeye comic or something like some, like back when it was early on. Yeah. It, if you go deep into it, the things can get really lost. And the fact that, you know, Apparently, Hulk can't star in his own solo movie because I think Universal still holds the rights to it, but Marvel yeah. still holds the right to She-Hulk, which is why we're getting a She-Hulk series. You want to hear how messed up it is for the Hulk rights? The Hulk rights, Marvel owns the production rights, so Marvel can only make the movie. 
Universal is the only company that can distribute the movie. So Marvel can make it and put it on a shelf and just tell Universal, hey, we got one made, but if you want to put it out there, up to you, man. Like, <laughs> it's the weirdest sharing arrangement I've ever seen. The next Hulk film produced by Roger Corman. Yeah, and distributed by God knows who, right? Like they had nothing to do with this movie, of course, which yeah. is exactly what the producers of this movie had. But anyways, I digress. <laughs> so this film sat at a $120 million budget approximately, grossed only $56 million domestically and $167 million worldwide. So when you count in like all the advertising budget and whatnot, you know, at best it broke even. At worst, it, it not necessarily a flop, but definitely a money loser. But it definitely won at the Razzies. It tied mm. with Fifty Shades of Grey for Worst Picture that year. It won the award for Worst Prequel, Remake, Ripoff, or Sequel, and won for Worst Director. Now, oh, lordy lord. Now, currently, currently, 2015's Fantastic Four sits at a 9% tomato meter and an 18% audience score. Now, for reference, the unreleased 1994 Roger Corman Fantastic Four film has a 30% tomato meter and a 27% audience score. So a movie that was never released, was never made to be released, is ranking better than this major budget, major studio film. Which, uh, good on Roger Corman, I guess? Podcast is called It's Not That Bad, right? <laughs> um, at least it's not 8%. That's, that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> This is true, and it's not the lowest rated movie that we have talked about on this podcast. So, you know, yeah. there's kudos to that. Um, but let's get into the breakdown here. Let, okay. Let's let's talk about the meat and potatoes. And the first category, of course, is acting. So, Kevin, I'm going to toss it over to you. Who do you have as good acting in this film? Um, I liked Jamie Bell until they auto-tuned him. I actually, I actually did like his on-screen performance. He was cool when they called him drunk uh, midway through the movie, and he goes, read like screw off. <laughs> like I'm, I'm sleeping. You're drunk. Go home. Like whatever. Um, it's like good, bad, ugly. Michael B. Jordan was great, mm -hmm. but then again, he's never bad. So you know what you're getting, you know what you're paying for with him. And I think with those um, two, like Ben Grimm has always been kind of the protector of Reed yes. Richards and Jamie Bell, you know, before getting all Rocky, um, mm -hmm really played that well there there was a good there was a really good dynamic that mm -hmm. jamie bell brought with miles teller um mm -hmm. i i i agree the auto tune yeah. on on his voice that is something that <clears throat> yeah yeah no with the with the sound design of the rocks moving on that's something that you know as much as you may not like the 2005 fantastic four mm -hmm. michael chiklis was perfect his he was voice made to was, be Ben Grimm. Oh, absolutely. Like he was yeah. he was he was pristine casting for that. And Jamie Bell pre becoming the thing, Ben Grimm, I think was actually very good casting. And yeah, Michael B. Jordan. I, I love the fact that the two people who have starred in Fox Fantastic Four movies as the human torch then went on to the MCU. Yeah. Because of course it was Chris Evans as as Johnny Storm in 2005 and then uh, rise of the silver surfer and and you know who marvel's first choice was for falcon who we now know spoiler alert would eventually take on the shield so we actually could have sat here and said uh that both human torches eventually become captain america because michael b jordan was the first choice right oh yeah. my god like that that would have been i mean both anthony mackie and michael b jordan are phenomenal 
you know, in the MCU. They both would have brought a different um, element to it, right? Like Anthony Mackie is obviously way funnier, but Michael B. Jordan just would have brought this like tough guy aspect that totally would have matched Chris Evans. And it would have been really cool to see like a buddy cop thing almost. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Anyways, it's all hypothetical at this point. <laughs> no, but, but, but it is interesting because, you know, I don't think Black Panther is as good as it is without Michael B. Jordan as Killmonger. Yeah, I agree. You know, he is, you know, phase three, Marvel really killed it with getting their villains. You know, mm-hmm. Kate Blanchett as as Hela, Michael B. Jordan as Killmonger, you know, uh, you know, Thanos. I mean, freaking Thanos. You know, mm-hmm. like there was so much good in the way of villains mm-hmm. in phase three that Black Panther isn't as good as it is. I've said it on the show before. A, a superhero movie is only as good as the villain in the movie. And Michael yes. B. Jordan as Killmonger was perfect. I remember that. That was Masters of the Universe episode with your loving wife. Yes, Harry. absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay. Having said that, because I was actually going to bring that up. I, I, I wanted you to be kind of like low key impressed where I'm like, Hey, I listened to one of your previous shows and you said <laughs> this and Hey, I'm going to bring it back right now, but no, just as good as the villain. Okay. Another acting credit here. Toby Kebbell, who plays Victor Von Doom in this, did the best he could with the script that was written. I'm so glad you put it that way. Like, his character was awfully written, but he did a great job because if you're writing an origin story for the Fantastic Four, um, I won't get into like the actual writing of it. I just want to talk about Victor Von Doom's character arc. Because you need to have, a, first of all, a love triangle with uh, Miles Teller, Kate Mara, Toby Cavill, like the uh, Susan Storm, Reed Richards, Victor Von Doom. Which I think they kind of it first. very well, actually, before, you know, before they, they the went off. Kate robotic. Uh, yeah. there, there, there's something to that, though, and I'm, I'm going to bring that up a little bit later. But yeah, no, absolutely. I think the three of them together did play off that 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 love triangle. I think there I thought fairly well. Grow. There was mm-hmm. room to grow apart, even. Because Victor Von Doom in the, if you watch like the animated shows with your kids and stuff now, like I watch them because I'm still a kid, but (laughs) (laughs) but if you watch those shows, he's a tyrant already. You don't get that backstory. You just assume Dr. Doom, he's super evil, but we're getting an origin story here. So we got to meet Victor Von Doom before we meet Dr. Doom over here, you know? So It, It is true that at the time in their lives that they're making this film, you can't have... You know, the Latverian dictator, Dr. Doom. I like that they have him actually from Latveria as well. That was cool. They didn't it, do that in 2005. No, no. And I, I'm I'm just waiting. I'm waiting for Latverian dictator, Dr. Doom. And because you could do so much with that. But you're right. You, you couldn't do that in this film. Um, yeah. But speaking of Kate Mara, I liked her as Sue Storm. And... I, you say robotic, you, you, I, I see you shaking your head. You can't, listeners can't see you shaking your head because this is audio only, but you're shaking your head. Here's the thing. During the making of this film, Kate Mara has come out and said that Josh Trank, she was not his choice to be Sue Storm. And when, you know, Jessica Alba was a little older than his cast, so I get it. Like, you but, gotta. But Kate Mara was pushed, I, I, I guess, kind of suggested greatly by the studio in order to be to be sue storm you know mm-hmm. and apparently josh trank like what was not very kind to her on mm-hmm. set and you can kind of get that feeling 
But I remember when when they announced this movie, as you said, you were watching the trailer, and they they announced Kate Mara as Sue Storm, and I'm like, that's like for a younger, you know, kind of origin story of the Fantastic Four. I thought Kate Mara was a perfect choice. Mm. Like I took a look at the, at, at the four of them, you know, at Michael B. Jordan, Jamie Bell, and this is on announcement. This isn't you know, but this is before we saw the movie. Mm. And if you take a look at that 2005 Fantastic Four, uh, Ion Gruffer as as Reed Richards. Perfect. Chris Evans as Johnny Storm. Perfect. Uh, mm-hmm. Michael Chiklis as the thing was meant to be the thing. And Jessica Alba felt like the, like the studio, the someone the studio put in. Right. Mm-hmm. Initially taking a look at the, at the fantastic four in this film before it was released. Kate Mara was the only one that seemed that she was going to be perfect for the role that she was in. And you know, when you're doing something where it's like, okay, she signed on, you know, she's in this movie and she's, you know, apparently being treated like crap by Josh Trank. Mm-hmm. You know, again, we, we weren't there. We don't know what's going on, but mm-hmm. you know, she's come out and said that it wasn't exactly the best work experience of her career. Mm-hmm. You know, she did an admirable job, but I think she, you know, could she have done more? Yes. Was she inclined to do more because of the way she was probably being treated? No. I think Kate Mara would be great given a second chance with a different director. Mm. You know, if Kate Mara comes back as Sue Storm under the Marvel, you know, un, under the MCU banner with a different director, I bet you anything Kate Mara kills it as Sue Storm. I know. I, I know. Do that anymore, though. Isn't she the secretary's lapdog in uh, Iron Man 1? No, he's the guy that hands Tony the subpoena. Is she? Yeah, and he goes, "I don't like being handed things." Or no, it was Iron Man two. She hands it to him right at the beginning, and then he appears to court, and then we find a, a blacker uh, Rhodes. Sorry, Don Cheadle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but they they have reused actors before in the MCU, so it's it's yeah. not it's not out of the the question for her to kind of come back. Martin Even Star it, being one of them. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like it's it's OK, I think, if we bring back Kate Mara, Sue Storm, I, you know, multiverse. multiverse, it's all Loki's fault, which Loki we don't know, but it's all Loki's fault. Are you um, sure? Did you see that No Way Home trailer? Are we sure it's Loki's fault? <laughs> I don't know. Are we sure that's even the proper Doctor Strange? Well, you, did you see today's episode? What the, at the point of recording, the Doctor Strange What If episode came out, just I, so everyone. I, I have not seen it, but anyone who's seen the What If trailer, we see a darker kind of Doctor Strange. So I don't know which Doctor Strange is actually the one cast in the spell. Like, there's there's so many more questions, but I would be very happy to see Kate Mara return as Sue Storm, even if it's you know an alternate alternate timeline multiverse version of her. Um, I don't think she was given the opportunity to be as good as she could be, but given everything that was kind of going on, I, I still like her as the emotional anchor. And because she played Sue Storm as smarter than the rest, pretty mm-hmm. much. You know, it wasn't she wasn't just there to be motherly and 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 caring and and eye candy. Mm-hmm. She was she came in there as equally brilliant equally strong, equally, you know, equally up to the task of creating this device that was going to allow them to go to this, you know, other world or other dimension. Kate Mara killed that part. And despite any of the production problems, you know, 
I would still like to see her as Sue Storm. I have no problem with that. I will say the one thing I noticed that was a, a huge trend throughout the entire movie is, and it was such a disservice to her character, not how it was written per se. What I'm about to say is that her character required music in order to think about algorithms and, and pattern recognition, mm-hmm. which is cool. I like that. I get behind that. But if this movie's directed by James Gunn, they're not using the Fantastic Four score to find beats, to find Captain Nemo, to find Reed Richards. No, they're using some 80s like hit that I think would have lightened the mood in this movie. It was, it was, this movie was making a push for an Oscar and it won a Razzie. Yeah. I, I do have to point out, you know, if anyone deserves, um, you know, maybe not an Oscar, but definitely, you know, like held you about to spoil your MVP. Uh, maybe, maybe not. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's the late Reggie Kathy who played Dr. Franklin oh. Richards. Um every time he's on the screen. It was incredible. Oh my god, his voice. First of all, first of all, that voice was You just gotta make it really raspy and say things like this, you know. I wish he was still around today to just to narrate documentaries. But he brought such a presence to the screen. And as I was watching him with Michael B. Jordan as Johnny Storm. Mm. Is it bad that I'm sitting there watching this? I'm like, why didn't we have this dynamic between Cyborg and Silas Stone in Justice League? Mm -hmm. Because Michael B. Jordan, great actor, was good in this role. Reggie Cathy, brilliant in this role. And that's, you know, I wish we had that dynamic and, you know, that level of, you know, a true, you know, father-son relationship. Because that's what Cyborg and Silas Stone are in justice league and i don't feel we kind of got that you know within the entire four hours of what Zack snyder put together he he brought so much gravitas he brought so much like fatherly compassion yet still driven as well to 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 make this thing and to be able to develop this technology mm-hmm. and you know very much the emotional center of everything um you know it I, I can't stress how lucky they were to have him in that role. It's very much like having Sir Alec Guinness in the role of Obi-Wan Kenobi in the first Star Wars film. Like yeah. just that gravitas, that presence, that that almost mentor-like figure for all of yeah. these young characters at the time, right? Yeah. This is this is, you know, the Fantastic Four when they're, you know, late teens, maybe early 20s. You know, they need that guidance. And, Re- and Reggie Cathy as, as Dr. Franklin Richards, brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. No, and and I, I was I was looking up her name because I, forgive me, I didn't know who the casting director was for the second remake of the Fantastic Four. Uh, Rona Kress. Rona mm-hmm. Kress. Uh, kudos to her. And I'm going to give a little slow clap, okay? Right. Rona Kress for casting the best available and the best options rather than looking at skin color and saying, well, we got Reggie, Kathy, and we got Michael B. Jordan. Now we need a black Sue Storm. No, just play the adoption card and get the best available actress for Sue Storm. Mm -hmm. And I love that. It felt natural. It was fine. She made a joke about it later. Everyone moved on. It's not a thing that you got to make a big deal of. Kids get adopted all the time now. Like it's not, I, I just, I, I think it's, it's underrated and it goes unnoticed, but I noticed it and I thought it was really well done. I, I, one thing I did like about Kate Mara and you know, the dynamic between her and Michael B. Jordan is mm-hmm. that her Sue Storm is incredibly intelligent, incredibly mm-hmm. intelligent. And, you know, 
it's it feels like sometimes you know people of that level of intelligence you know they're not necessarily outwardly emotional but she was still able to you know give that you know enough to be able to say it's it's nice to have you working with us again you know and not like overly compassionate kind of thing because that would have been out of character for the way she was playing it i i think kate mara like in that moment gave the perfect that sue storm you know acknowledgement and you know compassion to her johnny storm that that character deserved and she played that perfectly in character and yeah. you know as much as anyone might say cold no it's it's highly analytical highly intelligent you know despite what the director is saying and doing um she's right in character and that's the way that i think that that character would. her character is also right in sync with dr franklin storm because she the vibe that i got i don't know if you got the same thing i got the feeling that she is daddy's little girl and franklin doesn't look too greatly on johnny right now he sees johnny as a delinquent he sees Johnny as you have this great potential. You are, uh, I think he's an engineer in this movie. He goes, mm-hmm. you're fantastic in the, it, like, once you get your hands on this stuff, you're, you're just amazing with it, but you could be so much more and you choose to do absolutely shit all with it. Mm-hmm. it and it I is, think it translates with her performance as well. It is very much, um, you know, getting back to the, you know, the Johnny and, and dad kind of mm-hmm. dynamic is that, it is. It's very much a, I know you can do this. I know you are extraordinarily smart. I know you are extraordinarily brilliant and you're mm-hmm. capable of doing this. And yet you're skidding out a, a crappy little Honda, you know, on, on a, after you blew it out because you revved it too much into a, in, into a lamppost. And, you know, it's not, it, it's not like he came down hard. It's just that, you know, even worse, you know, if, if anyone had their parents go, I'm incredibly disappointed in you. And they walk away and it's just like, I'm in so much shit. When you hear oh, that, you just know that in this universe, Johnny storm has received multiple times. The I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> like so many times. <laughs> and, and, and of course, and again, with that voice, that Reggie Kathy was, I'm incredibly I'm disappointed mad. in you. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> you are capable of so much more. <laughs> he could have been Darth Vader, man. He's got a really good voice. Oh, he, he could have voiced anything. Yeah. Absolutely anything. Um, but but it is hard. And the thing is with Miles Teller, like it's hard because I, I, I thought I thought Ian Gruffer was was actually maybe and still may be the perfect choice for Mr. Fantastic. As much as we would love to see a John Krasinski, Emily Blunt, you know, Reed Richards, Sue Storm duo mm. in the MCU, uh, when he was cast. He had the look, he had the demeanor. Yes, that you know, they played it a bit more for laughs in in the 2005 movie, but he was still it's kind of like when they cast Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man. Mm-hmm. Like you take a look at him and you know, regardless of what you thought of the way Robert Downey Jr.'s life and career had gotten to at that point, could you picture anyone else as Iron Man? Really? I mean, especially not Tom Cruise, because I know that was on the table. I was very much on the table. <laughs> <laughs> and thank God they took it off the table. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's hard to to pick up a role that was played very well, even if the movie wasn't that great. Mm-hmm. It's hard to pick up a role that you ha- that people have of a, you know, a, a vision of, a picture of. And yeah. Miles Teller, while not bad, 
Mm-hmm. Now, and they are, like you said, they are working with not the greatest script in this, but mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's hard to overcome the previous good performance of that character, especially when it's just seven years past. You uh, do subscribe to the RDJ screen test um, uh, conspiracy. What, there's a conspiracy? Have you ever seen a screen test released by Disney that's not RDJ doing Iron Man? Have you ever seen any other actor ever? Like you've seen Tom Hiddleston reach out as Loki or as Thor because it looked so ridiculous, right? There's a there's a conspiracy out there for all the super nerds like us that there was actually two or three people that were probably on par with Robert Downey and looked the part and showed up with the goatee and the whole bit. But because Sarah Finn was so set on RDJ, they put all their chips on that guy that they're just like, we can't release these to the public because they're going to, if anything goes wrong with RDJ, they're just going to ask to recast him. Like we have to throw all the chips on this guy. I don't know. It's, I just thought it was funny. <laughs> but the thing is, when you take a look at who Tony Stark is in the comic books, mm-hmm. you know, you know, brilliant yet tragically flawed. Yeah. And, you know, pre 2008, RDJ is very much brilliant and tragically flawed. You know, mm-hmm. goatee and look aside, you know, he very much embodied everything that kind of Tony Stark was. And we got that redemption arc, not just of Iron Man, mm-hmm. not just of Tony Stark of Robert Downey Jr. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, I, again, I, I do hope that somewhere down the road, you know, some of these actors do get a chance to be in the MCU because we, we've opened the door with the multiverse for that. I think given a different director, it might even be a, a much better film. Um, yeah. But let's talk about this script. Yes. <laughs> you know, you and I can talk Marvel all day, man. <laughs> Non-Latvian Doctor Doom aside, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, let's also put aside the fact that we have a sky beam. We have a sky beam. Um, I actually didn't mind the different take on um, the Fantastic Four getting their powers. Me you too. Know? Like, it was very much like they weren't going up in a, in a shuttle and getting hit by cosmic rays. You know, mm-hmm. that, that, of course, is the the classic yeah. you know, comic book storyline. I, I really actually enjoyed that take of we're building this device and mm-hmm. it just happens to take us somewhere else. And something on that planet um, was what caused it. It, be, it almost made it more plausible, even though they really get into, well, why does this do different things to different people kind of thing? I'm almost mm-hmm. kind of glad that they didn't, you know, they, mm-hmm. they, they didn't, super analyze it and the following take of using the fantastic four you know not as scientists you know to put them into place and you know maybe use them as superheroes they were weapons they were being trained and used as weapons and i found it a fascinating take you know especially because you know miles teller kind of ran away and did his thing mm-hmm. everyone else is like okay you're, you're fine with this i'm gonna be fine with this mm-hmm. it's it's interesting like I I had um I had a bit of a like a not a reference but like um I don't know, like uh, an initial thought after thinking about how this movie was written and I was thinking okay so Josh Trank Jeremy Slater sat down and they thought okay what did the 2005 movie not do so much we're gonna dive into that so the 2005 movie if I remember correctly um 
because I didn't watch that one to review this movie. Um, but it started off with the accident and then we progressed their powers and Ben Grimm didn't want his powers and all that. They basically tried to do the polar opposite of that. Everything that that director did, they tried to flip flop it. Now, the one trope that they ran into, which I will say on this show, it was that bad. <laughs> it was an hour and four minutes of buildup for a six minute fight. <laughs> Dude, you did the math, didn't you? You said Dude. that with a stopwatch saying, okay, are we going to, we're going to throw it down or what? Watch. I paused it once and I said, holy <laughs> crap, we're not even at a, nobody's throwing a punch yet. <laughs> what has happened? Oh my God, it's, it's the cinematic version of, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Uh, are we there yet? I needed a fireball to the thing's crotch or face or something before the final fight. And that's the one thing that the 2005 movie kind of really got right is that, you know, in the comic books, the Fantastic Four was accepted for what they were because they didn't get along, you know, mm -hmm. because they did have problems as a unit because they, they had personality clashes. It's not like, you know, the the original, you know, uh, golden age of comic books, Justice League, where everyone is is on, you know, team justice and we're going to do the right thing because that's the right thing to do. You know, mm -hmm. they had personality conflicts. They didn't always get along. And even though they were family, yeah, there was a little bit of bickering and that played well in the 2005 here. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a, it's a much different take, you know, and I know some people, I think we're comparing it to the ultimate storyline as far as mm -hmm. the fantastic four goes, but you know, the fact that the government was the ones funding and then you know, they go to the planet, they get their powers and come back and the the device is pretty much destroyed. They can't go back. You know, yeah. they're like... And they, they left the human sex doll on that planet, right? Yes. Yes, they did. Um, I will now never watch that scene any other way. <laughs> Thank you kindly for that. Uh, it's vivid. I am here for a pleasure. Oh, God, yeah. But the fact There's that There's no victor, only doom. <laughs> Uh, see now I just want to hear that like like Ghostbusters, you know there is no Dana only Zool. That's the line. Yeah, that's the line. Uh, that's what got me. Ghost oh, of the Gozerian God. turned Victor Von Doom into Doctor Doom. That's pretty much what we're looking at with oh, the sky beam. Sorry, can I cut you off for one second? Because yes. we're past the casting part, but I want to give real big kudos as well to the casting director. The kid version of Miles Teller looks like the kid version of Miles Teller. Oh my God, yes. That was the perfect casting. I just want to point that out. And the fact that the, yeah, the, the, the makeup team actually put, because I guess Miles Teller has scars, they actually put yeah. scars on the little kid to make, to make him look that much more. Yeah, like the kid versions of Amazing. Jamie Bell and Miles Teller, like they, they nailed that casting. And, and I, he's a little chubbier than Miles Teller, but you know when you grow and hit puberty that you lose maybe some of that baby fat or, or you keep it and it, it grows more <laughs> or, yeah, you, no, or, or you have the baby fat and then you lose it and then you get much older and it comes back yeah as, when do you stop calling it baby fat like i i'm i'm looking at myself right now in the zoom call and i'm like is this adult fat now is that what we're calling it? <laughs> i i'm gonna call it the COVID 19 pounds and hopefully hope that it goes away um extra 19 pounds that's it but i actually did enjoy that first part of the fantastic four with with those two in there because those two made sense. Those mm -hmm. two characters made sense. And, you know, I love the fact that it was, you know, Ben Grimm was bullied at home. Mm -hmm. You know, so the kid who was bullied, you know, 
and could have gone a very different, he could have gone down that bully road. Yep. He sided with the kid who was bullied and these two kids weren't going to be bullied anymore because at least they had each other. And, yep. you know, that actually as a script moment mm-hmm. set up the dynamic between Ben Grimm and Reed Richards. I think of any scene or of any section of this film, that's the part where you sit there and go, I don't, I don't get why this movie was so panned on. And then you have the Dr. Doom sex doll and it's like, yeah, nope. Now I see why it was panned. But mm-hmm. that, that opening part of young Reed and, and young Ben together, you know, working their way up to the, to the science fair. You're right. The casting director nailed the kids on that one. And wait, the, what phrasing <laughs> phrasing <laughs> the, the casting director perfectly picked the children for that role. <laughs> and then, and then like the scripting of it and the pacing of it and the way it was played out. Yes. That part of this film, like that was really good. That was, a, that was a really good, fantastic four moment. And then it kind of went off the rails. Um, but yeah, the, like Heroes as a Weapons, they kind of weapon X'd the Fantastic Four. And I didn't actually hate that idea as a plot device in this. Oh boy, I really want to say I disagree with you, but I, I can't say I hated it either. Like it's, It goes back to my original point of they were trying to do the opposite of whatever. So like the Jessica Alba team was very much a, we're going to close ourselves in, we're going to deal with it ourselves. And this Fantastic Four family or team, whatever you want to call it, um, they very much got swept under their feet right away because the wrong people were around at the wrong time. They got carted off and they got completely told what to do. I just wish that they gave the thing some clothes, mm, yeah, even a pair of gym shorts, something. Uh, yeah, people got their rocks off watching that one. I'm not going to lie. Got their rocks <laughs> off. Did you write that one down? I no, think I did. did. I did not write that one down. And thank God I didn't because then I have to explain why. Who got their rocks off on what? But, you know. Um, That's clippable. This, this, <laughs> this script is being monitored for quality assurance. <laughs> I, I actually just got that in my ear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm glad you kind of brought up the lack of costume for the mm-hmm. thing because I actually didn't mind the jumpsuits. You know, yes, yeah. yes. In, you know, the, the 2005, you know, the, they had a very bright, very, you know, early 2000s era kind of costume. I didn't mind this. You know, it is very much a darker take. Uh, yeah. on they only the dressed Franklin's floor. kids, eh? Yeah. That's it. They only dressed Franklin's kids. Yeah. Cause Reed came in with this make a wish, not make a wish, but like that's the wrong <laughs> phrasing. Oh my God. This, um, uh, value village type of, uh, like metal rings around his arm. The, the, the make it yourself Halloween costume of a fantastic DIY, four suit. make it yourself. That's what I was trying to go for. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm, I'm glad they didn't have like some weird generic four on there. Like I, I liked the set design. I liked the, uh, the suit design. Um, even Sue Storm with the gloves, like mm. the fact that she's using her hands in order to be able to project not just her invisibility, but like the force fields and all that. It makes sense for her to wear gloves because we don't mm. know at this point if these powers are actually hurting her to be able to mm. learn to develop. I mean, mm. obviously, you know, there's the psychological toll of becoming the thing onto Ben Grimm and that's hurting him. But they skipped that by going out one year later. Mm hmm. Right. So maybe the gloves actually help her control things. We don't know, uh, but I still don't mind it as part of the costume. Um, yeah. You know, 
we're yeah, not going to. I, I find it uh, interesting that you brought up the, I didn't want the number four on the, the patch on there. Mm-hmm. I would have been okay with if they canonized uh, numbering off the Fantastic Four. And then in that fight with Dr. Doom, the only thing that was left was whoever wore the number four. And then he goes, well, we're a team and there's four of us. Like, let's just put the four on all of us or something. Like, I mean, they already did a corny job at the end. of It's fantastic. Like, like <laughs> in, in a very roll credits moment, they actually rolled the credits on that. Yeah. But, but to the same token as well, speaking of Age of Ultron that came out the same year, they kind of did the same thing at the end of that with the Avengers cut the credits. Right before we got the assemble. Now, and Chris it, Evans was so protective over that line, eh? Even even when they kept rolling, he wouldn't say it because he goes, "I don't trust that they're not going to use it. I don't trust." So he would only ever say Avengers, and they'd zoom in more, and he'd go, "Ah," <laughs> you know, like he wouldn't say it. He was so protective over that line. And thank God they did hold back on that because that payoff in what a great moment in Endgame was just like, and you hear it. If you've ever watched those videos of audience reaction when they're in the theater and that moment happens and he finally says assemble, like people lost their shit on that. It was such a moment and which was really, really weird when you watch it during the pandemic and you can't go to the movie theaters and you can't have that moment. And you remember what those moments were like in the theaters, you know, here it would be like the opposite. Like, you know, that whole thing plays out and people are like, oh, (laughs) not not to harp on it too, too much, but did I, I told you what happened in my theater, right? I was there opening night, like the Thursday of opening night of Endgame. No, I had, I had a group of um, African-American women sitting in front of me. There was maybe a group of 12 of them. And as soon as black Panther walked through that portal, they started a chant of E-bombe! E-bombe! and the whole theater was losing love it. it it was the best thing it was like everyone just knew what to do it was awesome it was like a concert that was unscripted it was awesome is is that is that a, a concert at that point or is that like a, a, a it rocky- wakanda at that point i forgot i was in downtown toronto <laughs> okay if, if we start to like have key things audience reactions for movies it's going to turn into the rocky horror picture show and i I don't know if I don't like that. That, that that's I I would I'd be fine. Like you know, you know, this is the part where everyone gets up and starts chanting. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in yeah, like I, this this script. Back to the script here, okay? Because mm-hmm. you know what, I got lots of problems with the script. But anyways, <laughs> it, there's two types of students that write English exams. Okay, this is this is basically my analogy for this. There's the type that write their first paragraph and they think it's the shit. They're like, oh man, this is the best thing ever. The English teacher's not even going to read the rest of my report. I could just fill it in with a bunch of BS after. And then there's the English student that writes this fantastic opening, fantastic opening, but you have to cap it off at 1500 words and they're at 1350. So for the last 150 words, they're like, oh shit, here's my ending. That's exactly what they did for this movie is they had so much into, you know, what actually would have really helped this movie. And I was just thinking of this after it, it's an hour 40 runtime. Yep. If they had just done a two twenty runtime, which is not unheard of, it would have been a little long at the time for a superhero movie. But if you did a two twenty, and you treated that, um, uh, when, when they found Victor back on, Planet Zero, is that what they called it? Yes, it was Planet, Planet Zero. Zero. Where they, they found him back there and they thought, we got to bring him back. They bring him back. He's on the table. 
They fight for their world. If that was a little more stretched out and a little more drawn out and you had the heroes lose first, get their shit together. And then Victor had to go back home and then they found out he was building something, not some rock sculpture with a sky beam, but actual technology. Like he had been transporting back and forth or whatever, like something more realistic that he had a big plan all along that you didn't really see. Cause we were, we were following the heroes, right? Mm-hmm. It just seemed very like they became the fantastic four, like in 10 seconds. And they all had catchphrases and okay, another five years of this. Cool. Let's keep the rights. Like it, it, it did feel like, um, almost like a Joss Whedon moment where he comes in and redoes Justice League and then they have to restore the Snyderverse years later. Oh. Uh, yeah, you know, complete with, you know, wig on Kate Mara that definitely looked like a wig on Kate Mara. Well, this was, so this was the... <laughs> I'm going to walk right past that comment, mister. <laughs> no, that was the, the thing. So I told you before we, before we started recording that I had a story for you. So I read a report somewhere that Simon Kinberg would hop on set casually the time when he goes um, early on and when the kid was filming and the kid was getting smacked in the head by his older brother, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And he said, it's clobbering time. Those little moments, the flame on, which kind of organically worked in that moment, but mm-hmm. all the catchphrases were days that Simon Kinberg was on set because he had made a comment in a, some kind of script reading or something saying we need more like comic booky stuff. We need to add in like the flame on the, the, we need to find the naming, the fantastic four. We need to put the Baxter building in, which understandably. So I get that put in the Baxter building hundred percent, but right. the like it's clobbering time. Why is the thing saying it's clobbering time in the final fight? If it was used to beat the shit out of him as a kid, is this like a Batman thing? Like he's afraid of bats. Now he throws bats at people. Like, what are we doing here? So inaccurate, but (laughs) I I don't disagree though with the need for, for lack of a better term, fan service, you know, comic book movies are going to be watched by comic book fans, you know, and comic book fans are real discerning when it comes to their, you know, the treatment and the presentation of their comic book fandom, just ask Kevin Smith, who's been, you know, hearing it from all of, of yeah, all of Eternia, which I don't get. I actually like the animated series. Kevin Smith didn't do anything wrong there. You know, is it perfect? No, nothing is, but um, you need to have those moments. You need to have those little nods because now these days, you know, and, and even back then, it's we, the comic book viewing audience, are trained to look for the Easter eggs. Yeah. We watch a movie and we're not just watching the scene. We're not just watching the actors. We're not just watching the plot. We are watching all the little subtleties to, from, you know, in Age of Ultron, when there was mm-hmm. like a little data card and it said Jocasta on it, right? You mm. know, comic book fans are losing their ish. Or there's that blonde chick from Sokovia that I was convinced at the time was Carol Danvers. I was convinced they were going to bring her back because she kind of looked like the part and they never gave her any speaking lines. She had more screen time in the freaking trailer. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, like, ask any comic book fan who goes to watch a movie. They are sitting there trying to dissect it. There are hundreds of YouTube channels out there that dissect every single trailer that comes out frame by frame. That's... That's comic book comic book audience viewing, and if mm. you make a comic book movie and you're 
your idea of a script is fuck the comic book. We're going to do whatever the hell we want. Mm-hmm. You know, no wonder the fandom is going to back against you. And I think there's, there's a, there's a problem with it. And it stems back to the first four Batman movies. Mm. The first two Tim Burton Batman films had a dark feel to them. Not like dark as in, you know, doom and gloom and Batman's out there slaughtering people like he's no, bad. I, I understand calling it dark because it was coming off of uh, Adam West, right? Well, yeah. That's what people were well, accustomed to. Well, especially too. And even playing off of the Christopher Reeve Superman. Yeah. You know, because, you know, Christopher Reeve's Superman, A, perfect. B, yeah. you know, well, except for Superman for the quest for peace, but I, 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 I digress on that one. Um, but very light accident. in tone. And Tim Burton made a very dark themed but not 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 horror filmed like batman and then you hand it to joel schumacher Mm. you know with Mm. all the neon that you can get at the dollar store in those sets for batman forever and it was such a departure from batman from uh batman returns to batman forever that Mm. people people got whiplash at the difference aside the fact that it was val kilmer instead of michael keaton you know Casting change aside, the tonality difference is, is such a whiplash moment for Batman fans that no wonder people look at Batman Forever as a crappy movie, even though Batman and Robin was way worse. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's the same thing with this. The Fantastic Four, 2005, and then the the sequel, Rise of the Silver Surfer, they had a tone to them. They had, it was light, it was fun, but it was still an action comic book film and fantastic four fans. While they may not have been of, you know, you know, overall pleased with it. They, there were still moments where you sit there and go, yeah, okay. That's my Reed Richards. And I'm totally cool with Chris Evans as, as Johnny storm. And then to go to a very darker, you know, a much darker take on the fantastic four. Yeah. And which is even dark compared to the opening of the damn film, as we talked mm. about with the kids, you know, with young mm. Reed and young Ben, that had, that was almost more akin to the first Fantastic Four films, as opposed to everything that kind of happened after. It did feel like two different movies, and yeah, you you get that whiplash moment as soon as soon as they grow up, it's it's whiplash. Yeah, yeah, and they were definitely going for some kind of drama with this movie too. Mm-hmm. And I, I I think the the most important thing to think about when you're dissecting whether a movie is overall enjoyable, move the plot along, it was easy to follow, is dissect your favorite scene. So for example, uh, Infinity War, for example, when Doctor Strange is looking at the 14,306, I don't know what the number is, the the different alternate timelines. And that whole exchange between Star-Lord, Iron Man, Spider-Man, that whole scene is very funny, entertaining, it brings all their characters and their true nature and what you've developed. All of it is perfectly done. And if you look at it from a step back, it 100% also pushes the needle. It also pushes the plot forward as well because they are coming up with a plan, but they're being absolutely idiots about it. So there's a certain element of in this movie, everything that was pushing the plot along was being so blatantly transparent about pushing the plot along and then the scenes that were trying to be entertaining weren't really doing that and they weren't funny. So that's why they kind of came across as not really sticking the landing. I, I can see how that didn't translate. It's, it's hard. 
I feel for anyone who's trying to put out a superhero movie, you know, since the MCU period. has come along. Yeah. Just period. No. Yeah. Because the MCU <laughs> has very much changed the way superhero movies are expected to be. You know, mm-hmm. we want to go in, we want to see lots of action, but we still want to be able to laugh. Yeah. You know, and you saw that with the DCEU, you know, and the juggling they needed to do with the first Suicide Squad movie. I was just about to ask you about that one. Do you think the Suicide Squad does the same if James Gunn hadn't built a brand with Guardians? (sighs) He built a name for himself and he knows. He goes in there, they're going to expect some music, they're going to expect a team up, and Mm -hmm. they're going to expect some shady characters. It is a James Gunn film, you know? Yeah. And, you know, as much as it's still not, it's not even my favorite, even Guardians and Guardians 2, they're still not my favorite James Gunn productions. You know, mm-hmm. you have to go to the Belco experiment for that. I said I enjoyed Blackburn though. Mm, a Brightburn. Right, sorry. That's okay. Right. My buddy's girlfriend's name is Blackburn. I got her on the mind. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be cutting that part out. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, it's very much a James Gunn film. You had your laughs and whatnot. And I think, I mean, Admittedly, James Gunn had the the benefit of trying to springboard off of the first Suicide Squad film, which you know it's hard to look bad when you're beside or when that's your predecessor. But you saw that too with the Justice League film. You know, when mm-hmm. Zack Snyder had to step away from the production and mm-hmm. Joss Whedon came in, the studio's like, "No, no, we have to make them laugh like the Avengers." You now, it's it's hard, right? And then anyone who tries to go fully dark. You know, or at least a darker take. You know, you yeah. have that moment of 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 from Deadpool going. So, are you part of the DCEU? So dark. You know, the boys pulls it off. I've been saying it for so long that DC they need to just own the darkness. Joker, uh, Robert Pattinson's Batman, own it. Like, be the darker of the two. You need a separate genre. Don't be Marvel. Marvel is Marvel. Be your own thing. The problem with the DCEU is that. While they have had, you know, some bright spots, not many, mm-hmm. but some bright spots in DCU, their animated films are way better than anything they've put out, at least as part of the, the DC And the TV shows, too. The CW and, like, Superman and Lois is incredible. I just uh, watched episode one of season two of Stargirl. Mm-hmm. Love that show. Yeah. Never like, thought I did, but... But it's funny, though, that you mentioned a show like Stargirl and some of the stuff that's coming out of the, the, the Berlantiverse, if you will... Mm-hmm. It's not dark. I mean, yeah, Arrow started that way a little bit, but you know, it's it's not a dark. The Flash definitely not dark, right? Star Girl not dark. Um, Legends of Tomorrow is just a fun romp. Supergirl was very much not dark, so mm. it's not necessarily like you have to go dark. You know, you expect to have some fun when watching a superhero property, and the fun maybe lasted the first 10, 15 minutes of this 2015 fantastic four and then fun came to die afterward. And that's, that's part of the problem with first 15 minutes. Brilliant. Love it. Keep it. Yeah. We need to to fix the back end. Um, But while the directing may have been misguided, misguided, you know, we're trying, we're trying to be nice here. Yeah. yeah, Oh, sorry. The cinematography, the cinematography of it was actually quite good. I mean, yes, the, the planet zero was a little dark at the end. It was hard to see kind of thing like visually um, 
thinking to, back to that 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 final season of Game of Thrones and that one episode where you basically had to adjust your contrast to be able to see what the hell was going on. Mm-hmm. But there was a lot of good cinematography, I think, not just in the first part, which I think is the best part of the film, but you know, throughout there is good cinematography in there. It is a well shot film, even mm-hmm. if it's not a good, well directed film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, one hundred percent. I subscribe to that. Yeah, uh, is that shot of the um, the Baxter Building? I'm thinking about how the the junkyard uh, was shot. As as minor as that sounds, it was just it was wonderfully lit, wonderfully just everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, the cinematography and it's, it's incredible. Yeah, no, it was mm-hmm. great. I, I'm glad though that you mentioned the thing's voice earlier on in the show because mm-hmm. the the sound um well that's not great mm-hmm. the soundtrack was actually quite good um like the score I, yeah like yeah. i i love the fact that like during that whole you know when when the when they came back from planet zero and the thing blew up and you know you're seeing all these horrible images which by the way if you went to the Fantastic Four in the theater with your kids, say, oh, we're going to watch a Fantastic Four film. And I remember watching the one with Jessica Alba. It's going to be fun. And then you're seeing, like, Johnny Storm burnt to a crisp on the ground, and you're, like, covering your kids' eyes. Like, ah! You wonder why it didn't, wasn't that well-received. They had a char baby in the room. And yes. Miles Teller, like, losing his ish, right? Yes. The soundtrack really played up to that as well like giving some very horror movie vibes at that point the, yes. i think the soundtrack all the way through like marco beltrami and philip glass i i felt really hit it out of the park with with what was on the screen the score made it seem a lot better than you know the script and the direction actually was so full yep. credit to them i i do agree that uh, the thing's voice again you know it's hard when it's so close to the original or the 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 uh the Jessica Alba version. I'm just gonna call it the Alba verse. Um <laughs> and Michael Chiklis was so perfect. His voice, mm. the way he acted, like he was so perfect as that. Um mm. I I will say though that I think the CGI on the close-ups of the thing, you know, aside the fact that, you know, you give the boy some shorts, um the rock animation. Or give him a that, penis. You really want to scar kids? Give him a rock penis. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I left him speechless, folks. I'm just—he's picturing it. I'm, I'm now going he's to put that it. on a shirt. Give him a rock penis, folks. Gary, if you're listening, check the Google history. He's looking up rock penis tonight. <laughs> yeah, that, that's. <laughs> if, if your Google history has does the thing have a penis, clear your history yeah. <laughs> right now. Um, Wes, I had a thought. I had a thought. I, I don't know why I didn't bring this up for the writing part. I, I want to give uh, actually the writing team a little bit of kudos. They found an organic way. So you know how they built the shuttle and that's how they get their powers. They go to the mm-hmm. other world and they come back. They found an organic way with tying in the moon landing for these drunk idiots, these drunk college level idiots, as smart as they think they are. They're really idiots. They got drunk and they said, nobody remembers who built the shuttle. And I thought to myself, Holy shit, that's actually like 100% accurate. I have mm-hmm. no idea who built the first shuttle, but I know who Neil Armstrong is. I know who Buzz Aldrin is. Like that, that sound, that was a perfect, and that was Victor Von Doom that was written for. And I'm like, that's so perfectly written. That That, that is a solid script nugget in yeah. there. Like, absolutely. One of the things that does really stand out to me, um, yes. we talked about the CGI and rock penises, yeah. um, but the way that the human torch 
was mm-hmm. animated, you know, and the, and the facial expression. That is straight up, you know, original comic book human torch look. Yeah. Like when, when they would draw the human torch and those fantastic four comic books, that's how he looked. Yeah. You know, I, in, in the Albaverse, it, you know, it was good. It was mm-hmm. well done. But it didn't look quite like he looked in the comic books. And the way they designed the Human Torch in this, yeah, that's your fan service right there. That is mm-hmm. the Human Torch that people, you know, know and love. Even if you go back to watch like that really not so good Marvel cartoon from like the '90s that was on Fox, the Fantastic Four one. Yeah, yeah. The Human Torch looks very much like what he looks like in this 2015 film, and that's mm-hmm. how it looks in the comic books. So you sit there. If you're a comic book fan, mm-hmm. as soon as as soon as he flames on, that yeah. people are like, "That's that's him. That's my Human yeah. Torch. I'm fine with that." The CGI yeah. in this was really well done. Still holds up today. You know, that mm-hmm. team, that team, I think deserves a lot of kudos for what they did. I, I'd like to think that the CGI just advanced. I don't think it was there in 2005. I think if they had done it, it wouldn't have looked the same. But I'm glad that because the technology was there and available and advanced enough that they did go there. And it, I was so happy with how Michael B. Jordan looked as the Human Torch. Mm-hmm. So happy. It, it is still hard, I think, to properly do Reed Richards because that's the one part that did kind of stick out where, you know, stretchy arm dude. Um, Borderline Slenderman at times, man. Mm-hmm. And it'll be interesting to see what how Marvel pulls that off when we get the, the Kamala Khan series the Miss Marvel yeah. series, you know, because that's, that's, she's going to embiggen and that's, you know, how mm. is it going to look, you know, Reed Richards, 2005 esque or has the, the masterminds of the MCU and their graphics team who are phenomenal. Um, yeah. you know, how are they going to pull this off so far? Interesting. It's so, interesting. So far, every Disney plus series that they put on has looked phenomenal. Loki yeah. was, was, was a stellar masterpiece. WandaVision yeah. was so stylistic. And, you know, I mean, no Falcon and Winter Soldier is not known for its CGI, but there was some good action stuff in there. And it was very well written too. They're going to have a tough time, I think, making making Miss Marvel and, and the way she stretches and all that not not give off those bad Reed Richards 2005 vibes. Mm. You know, here's hoping that they pull it off because, you know, I aside from Inhumans, mm-hmm. I don't think Disney has has really, you know, has really missed a beat. Yeah, through, yeah. Throughout, throughout the entire MCU, um, but it brings us to this point in the show. So, Kev, who is your MVP of the Fantastic Four from 2015? Um, there's a speech. Actually, right near that scene I was telling you about, the one where he's talking about Buzz Aldrin and uh, that, it's just before it, in the exact same room from Reggie Cathy, the late Reggie Cathy. Um, and they, they even call him out for it. They're like, he's going to do the speech. Yeah, he's going to do the speech. And he gives this speech about how you guys are the brightest people in the entire world, smartest people by far, but you're the dumbest if you don't work together. And you need to like we need to combine the IQ in this room, and we need to solve something that's unsolvable. And uh, and it, obviously, he delivers it way better than me. And he's Reggie Cathy, so you know, way better. You know what? Stole the movie. Clearly, we were on the same wavelength because he is he is the emotional glue of this film. You know he he brought so much 
out of if, if he wasn't there, anyone else playing that role, mm-hmm. and this could have tanked. This could have been worse than it was before. Yep. But he brought a character and a characterization of someone who you would want as your dad, you know, mm. someone who you would want as your mentor, mm. you know, and, you know, when he dies in this film, mm. you know, it wouldn't have had the impact that it did mm. if he wasn't as good as he was. He is absolutely the best part of this. Reg E. Kathy, absolutely the Our MVP. Soul. Yeah. of this film and i wish that he was still around to come back in the multiverse of the mcu he was he was phenomenal yes. um kev thank you so much for jumping on here where can we find the smitty mini show and and where can we find you out in the interwebs oh smitty mini we're literally everywhere uh youtube twitter instagram uh apple Podcasts, spotify uh, everywhere we're on uh three networks now rogers tv uh we're in london uh Port Elgin. Uh, I don't remember the third one, but yeah, no, we're, we're all over the place, man. Kev, thanks so much for this. I'm sorry you made me watch this film, but thank you so much for this. And to all of our listeners, look, if you want to join in on the fun and you think that there's a movie that needs redemption or that there's a movie that there's no way in hell we can find anything positive to talk about it, hit me up on Twitter. You can find us at Not That Bad Cast. Put it out there. Put a movie out there. We'll watch it. We'll dissect it, and we will prove that no matter what, it's not that bad. This has been the It's Not That Bad uh, podcast. Kev, thanks so much for coming on the show. We'll catch you next time. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.